Part One, Section Two of the Autobiography of Cockney Tom. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.com. Recording by Len Nicholson. The Autobiography of Cockney Tom by Thomas Bastard, Part One, Section Two. From Rochester. I went to Gravesend, where I worked at my trade, singing now and then professionally. Thence I travelled to London, and found out my sister, who received me with sisterly love. I got work, and lived very happily with her for a long time. It so happened that my sister had an acquaintance, who used to call and see her occasionally. One day this friend brought her eldest daughter with her. I was engaged at my work, singing away as only shoemakers can sing the following beautiful lines. Beware those finikin lassies, and never by beauty be led, for a girl that surpasses all others, tis she that works hard for her bread. Who is that singing? inquired the young woman. It is my brother Tom, replied my sister. I should like to see him, she said. You shall, said my sister, and she brought the young woman into the room where I was working. I blushed, for I thought I had never before seen such a good-looking young person. We all had tea, and I had the impertinence to ask her to take a walk, and she did not refuse. From that time we became lovers, and were four months afterwards married at St. John's Church, Waterloo Road, Lambeth. After I had brought the ring, paid the parson, and given a dinner, which I had also paid for, I took my bride to furnish lodgings. I got up the next morning to work, with the large capital of three shillings and sixpence to start a new life. I, however, was not going to be discouraged with such a small beginning, and as neither my wife nor I were deficient in pluck, we both determined to work early and late, and soon got a home of our own, a small one, in Walworth, where we lived as happily together as if our house had been a mansion. But this happy state of things was destined not to last long. When the winter came, I was thrown out of work, and my wife was confined of a daughter, and things had now come to such a pass that I took to singing again in order to obtain food. The result of having to be out late at nights was that I fell ill and was laid up with a fever. The doctor ordered me to St. Thomas Hospital, where I remained for eight weeks, during which time none of my friends, save my good wife, came to see me. At last I found myself better and left the hospital but only for a short time, for a second attack obliged me to return for some weeks longer, until I had regained my strength. I then made a fresh start, got work at a bespoke shop, and became the don during the two years I worked as journeyman. I then left Lambeth, and obtained work in Chelsea, with better wages, but as food and rent was dear, I was no better off than before I came to the West End. My troubles seemed as if they would never end, for my wife and four children now took the measles, and when my wife got better, I was again taken bad with a cold in my eyes, which nearly blinded me. I then became an outpatient at the ophthalmic hospital Charing Cross, and for many weeks I could not work, and had to go to the parish for bread for my children. After suffering great privation, I at last got better, and again worked at my trade, and in order to make up for lost time, I again took to singing at night, in low concert rooms, receiving from three to five shillings per night, and my beer. I followed this up for some time, when a sudden change took place in my life. It happened while I was working one day, and at the same time rehearsing my songs for the night's entertainment, that I was disturbed by a gentle knock at the door. "'Come in,' said I, 
and a lady entered with the remark, I beg your pardon, but was that you singing just now? Yes, ma'am, said I. I have to get my living partly by singing. Do you sing at church? No, I do not, I replied. Can you sing by music? No, ma'am. Would you like to be taught? I should like very much, ma'am, said I. Do you go to our church? We have beautiful singing there, and I am sure you would like it. Will you come if I promise to be your friend? I see you are a shoemaker. Would you object to work for yourself instead of a master? I said that I should very much like to be my own master, and be able to give up the concert-room business. Well, then, to begin with, you can take my measure for a pair of shoes, and come to my house in Grosvenor Place, and I will leave several pair for you to repair, and if you want any money to buy material with, you can have it. Thank you very much, I said, and I will attend to it. I told my wife, when she came home, all about it, and she was delighted. I have heard of that lady, said she. She is a very good woman, and visits the sick, and relieves the poor, and takes an interest in everything that is good. I called on the lady the next day, and was received kindly. To help me in my business, she introduced me to her servants, who favoured me with their orders, and gave as much work as would take me a week to perform. I finished the work, and gave general satisfaction. I was then persuaded to go to church and hear the singing, which was very grand. The incumbent was a good preacher, and used to attract the nobility from the West End of London. I was sent for by the minister, who undertook to have me taught music, and for this purpose I was invited to attend practice, in order to meet the organist and try my voice. I did so, and was told it was somewhat a rough one, but that if I gave my mind to study, I would in course of time make a fair chorister. I attended practice twice a week for two years, and at church twice on Sundays. About this time the Reverend W. C. Bennett conceived the idea of building a poor man's church, as his own church being crowded with the rich, the poor were crowded out. When he announced his intention, Earl Brownlow gave the land, and a collection was made, the proceeds of which amounted to the large sum of £2,220 in the short space of a quarter of an hour. Money came from all parts, and £50,000 was subscribed in less than three months. I was engaged to carry a banner at the laying of the foundation stone, and when the ceremony was over there was a good dinner given to the poor, and I had the honour of singing at the feast. My business increased so much every week that I soon began to employ workmen, and at one time had fifty ladies of title on my books, also lords, earls, dukes, and duchesses. The Countess of Cardigan was one of my best customers, and the Duchess of Argyle was another. My ambition at last got so high that I asked a lady of honour to the Queen to try to get for me Her Majesty's patronage. In this I, however, failed, and was told that the Queen never changed her tradespeople. I, however, succeeded in getting the work of the Duke of Wellington's household, the University Club, Army and Navy Club, Civil Service Club, and many others. So I continued to go on prospering till the poor man's church was finished. That was a great day, and the church was opened with much pomp and ceremony on St. Barnabas's Day, the 11th of June. It was named St. Barnabas's Church from that circumstance. On that day, for the first time in my life, I was arrayed in a surplice, and introduced to the singers as a member of the choir of St. Barnabas, Pimlico, and I now felt not a little proud of myself. Besides the church, they built a parsonage for the clergyman, and a schoolhouse to accommodate one thousand children, with sleeping rooms for twenty singing boys, who were supported out of the foundation fund, and who, besides being educated, were fed and clothed like young gentlemen. The whole of the buildings cost no less than one hundred thousand pounds when finished. 
I found out that to be a chorister was no easy billet, as I had to attend daily service at 6 a.m. on holy days. There were three services a day, with communion and sermons on Sundays, early communion at 7 a.m., prayers at 8 a.m. for the poor, and breakfast at 9 a.m. All the singers, men and boys, sang Non Nobis Domini, both before and after. At it again at 11 a.m., litany, anthem and sermon, after which came post-communion, then home to dinner, after which I came back again at 3 p.m. to baptism, followed by afternoon service. After tea came evening prayer at 7 p.m., with anthem and sermon. After these engagements, I and the rest would adjourn to the parsonage with the clergy, and have cake or tea or coffee, and then we would sing the Benedictus, and lastly return home to bed. This is the way I spent seven years of my life, most happy in my mind, and living in the fear of God, and endeavouring to bring up my family in the same happy way. But this happiness was doomed to have an untimely end. The newspapers declared war against Mr. Bennett, and accused him of preaching the doctrines of the Church of Rome, asserting that the service was more like an opera than the sacred worship of God. The bishop sent for him, and accused him with unfaithfulness to the Church of England. The outside public were against Mr. Bennett, and riots frequently took place on Sundays. I was sworn in as a special constable to protect the church property, and I used to go into the choir with a policeman's staff under my surplice. Meetings were called by the parishioners, and votes of censure were passed against the bishop. In this trouble the poor also had their say. I was elected chairman of the poor man's committee, with power to raise subscriptions for Mr. Bennett. A meeting was called for the rich and poor of the parish, and I had to make a speech, in preparation of which I had sat up till two o'clock in the morning. When it was my turn to speak, however, I was so flurried that I could not make out my notes, and I resolved on speaking extemporaneously, and had the satisfaction of winning a hearty round of applause. My speech was published in the Daily Chronicle of February the 8th, 1857. The unfortunate result of all this dissension was that the Reverend W. C. Bennett had to resign his living, and went on the continent for the benefit of his health, which was very much broken down by mental anxiety. His admirers in their sympathy presented him with a purse of seven thousand pounds, and I, and thousands of others, lost a good friend. I left the church, and transferred my singing to Westminster Abbey, and also sang sometimes at St. Paul's Cathedral. These events made me very unhappy and through reading the newspapers I became interested about Australia. Whilst thinking of emigration I fell ill with fever, but during my illness told my wife my thoughts on the subject. She stoutly refused to join me, and said, Thomas, you may go, but I shall do nothing of the kind. After considering the advantages my children would have in a new country, I made up my mind to go. As a first step I called on a nobleman whom I worked for. Sir Frederick Rogers, the emigration commissioner, and told him that I would like to go to Australia. How many children have you? asked Sir Frederick. Six, Sir Frederick, I replied. Then you can't go, as you have one child too many. If you only had five, I would give you your passage at once. I thanked him, and returned home very downhearted and disappointed. When I got home I told my wife the result, and she was as glad as I was sorry. Not long afterwards, the new incumbent called on me, and offered an appointment as verger and chorister at St. Barnabas's, with a decent salary and perquisites, and I accepted the offer. I forthwith got measured for a black cassock and new surplice, and on the following Sunday I presented quite a grand appearance. 
But in spite of all this, Australia kept running in my mind. Now, it happened that one of my children was taken ill, and I called in a doctor, who said the boy had water in the brain, and accordingly treated him for it. The child, however, got no better, and I got the services of a physician who said the boy had been wrongly treated, for, instead of water on the brain, the boy had disease of the lungs. This doctor gave no hopes of his recovery, and the child died shortly afterwards. I grieved very much over the loss of my boy, but I was visited and condoled by many of my friends. The clergy were very kind to me in my trouble, and even allowed the chorister boys to go a distance of three miles to Brompton Cemetery to attend the funeral. It was very impressive to see them dressed in their surplices, and hear them sing psalms at the grave, and also a short anthem at the close of the service. All this was very consoling to me, as it showed how much I was respected, and how deeply and truly they all sympathised with me. But in spite of all their love, I was not happy. Australia still ran in my head. Mr. Bennett returned to England improved in health, and was offered a living as vicar of Frome, not far from Bath. It was in the gift of the Marchioness of Bath and Wells, and was worth seven hundred pounds a year, which Mr. Bennett accepted. Things went on at St. Barnabas as before. Private confessions to the clergy, baptismal regeneration, penance, fasting, keeping saint days, and the real presence in the sacrament— was the style of the teaching which was held and believed in by the congregation. What has all this to do with Cockney Tom, some people may ask? At any rate, I could descry enough to see that there was more behind the scenes between the bishop and Mr. Bennett than I had brains to understand. I gave notice to leave the church. I called in Sir Frederick Rogers, and told him that having lost one of my children, I was then within the limit. He told me to make ready as soon as I could, and let him know, and he would get my order made out so as to sail by the next ship. I undertook no more work. I sold off my household goods, collected my debts, paid all I owed, and took lodgings in Salisbury Court, Fleet Street. I received orders to be ready to go and board at Southampton on a certain day. When my wife saw the order, she nearly fainted, and had a sleepless night, but I comforted her all I could and bought her a new silk dress. I was busy every day preparing for the voyage, and took leave of my brothers and sister Sarah, my original dry nurse. Many tears were wont to wet her cheeks as the subject of my departure was discussed. I resolved to visit Frome before I left England. Accordingly, I called on one of the church wardens, a friend of mine, and told him I would like to see Mr. Bennett before I left. He said, I will go with you. I want a trip out of town. So we fixed the time to start, and brought a perfect model of St. Barnabas Church, made by one of our members, a very clever architect. We paid him three pounds for it, and it was well worth ten. So off we started by the morning train for Frome, and arrived at five in the evening. The vicar received us with all love and kindness. We dined with him and his family, and after dinner the presentation took place. He was delighted. I was given over to the parish clerk to find my lodgings. This clerk, who was born and bred in Frome, and had been parish clerk for twenty years, was, as they would say in America, a most curious cuss. Nothing would suit the clerk, but he must take me to his pub, where the choristers and himself used to booze. The ale was very good, and in fact the town had quite got its name up for its ale. But sad to say the clerk got drunk, and in the exuberance of his feelings would sing, thinking no doubt that he would astonish me. This, however, he failed to do. After much persuasion, they got me to sing on Sunday at the church, 
I rose early on Saturday and visited the old church, where good Bishop Ken was buried, and also the market, and the river which runs through the town. After breakfast and morning prayer at the church, I visited the schools, and the hospital for the aged poor. In the evening I went up to their service, which was read by my friend, the clerk, then to bed. Up early on Sunday morning, a long walk, back to refresh, and get ready for church sang jackson's te deum and jubilati and was complimented by mr bennett and the choir arranged for the start back the next morning breakfasted early received from mr b a present of a book to remind me of my visit to frome and lastly received his prayer and benediction i got back safely and found my wife willing to share my fate and emigrate to australia when everything was ready i received a letter from the countess of cardigan full of good wishes for me and my family and a cheque for five pounds, which I did not refuse. I and my family started from London to Southampton, where we arrived the same night, and stopped at the depot. Very little sleep. After breakfast, took a walk over the old town of Southampton. Nothing much to astonish a Londoner. Went on board to report myself and family to the doctor, and to learn when we were to be examined. On answering to my name on the roll being called, the doctor said humorously, are you the person whom Sir Frederick Rogers wrote to me about? I replied that I certainly had the honour of knowing Sir Frederick, but I knew nothing about any letter. I will not forget you, said he very kindly. Tomorrow you will be examined, and will sail on Sunday morning. Next day I passed the examination, and was sent on board. I and my family got our berths allotted, and our luggage stowed away. Then the bell rang for the muster and as the names were called out, they had to pass from one side of the ship to the other. When my name was called out by the doctor, he bid me come forward, and calling the attention of the passengers, said that he had the right to appoint all constables, for the proper carrying out of the ship's regulations, and the general good order of the passengers, and it was his pleasure to appoint the said Cockney Tom, first constable of the vessel, William Stewart. We were all very jolly on board the ship on Saturday night, some singing, I'm afloat, I'm afloat, others, a life in the ocean wave, a home in the rolling deep. I felt rather dull. In the performance of my duty, I had to walk the decks till all the single women were locked up for the night, and to protect them against all intruders, which I afterwards found to be so difficult a task as to be almost more than I could manage. The tug came alongside next morning and took us on our way, not rejoicing, but feeling rather dicky as we got out to sea. Seasickness is a general complaint, and caused the passengers to turn up their noses even at the sight of a roast beef and plum pudding dinner. Singular to say, but nevertheless quite true, nobody found fault with the food for the first week. But after that, when the appetite returned, there was a great deal of grumbling at finding the supplies insufficient to satisfy their ravenous hunger, although there were many on board who had never lived so well in our lives before. Some of them got as fat as pigs. Others ate very little, on account of being almost always sick. I was one of the latter. A few days sailing brought the ship into the Bay of Biscay. It was a grand thing for bilious people, for it was as good as physic to most. At length we got out of the troubled waters, and arrived at Madeira, and could see the land and houses looking very beautiful. The weather was fine and dancing and concerts of an evening, and fishing in the daytime, made all very comfortable. Crossed the line, weather very hot. Could not sleep below, so laid on deck, crowded together like sardines in a box. 
After being becalmed nearly a week, we got a start with the trade winds, and bore away down south into the cold regions. Now I will tell you something that happened to my wife. It was then very stormy weather, and the sea ran mountains high, when she was confined and gave birth to a son, which they partially named after the ship, Stuart, the name of my brother Philip being placed first. A great rejoicing took place on board, and all the sailors got extra grog. I was appointed nurse, and had no objection to the billet at night, except the difficulty of carrying in the dark the necessaries required in such cases. For instance, when the ship was rolling heavily, my foot slipped, and I fell down and nearly broke my arm, at which mishap the sailors indulged in a hearty laugh. One night, when I was doing duty as nurse, a knock came to the hospital door. "'Who's there?' cried Tom. "'It is Jones, Mr. Constable,' said the visitor. "'There is a smell of fire in the ship.' I was out in a jiffy, and soon discovered that the second mate's cabin was in fire. We bust the door open, and there he was, fast asleep, and part of his clothes burning. There was a cask of rum in his cabin, and other spirits. We roused him out, got help, and soon put the fire out. Had the wind blown in the opposite direction, the ship would have been burned to the water's edge, and every soul have gone to Davy Jones' locker. How thankful I felt for this delivery of all from the very jaws of death. Soon after this, I got into a little trouble. I had warned the sailors to keep away from the single women, and threatened to complain to the doctor. The sailors discussed the subject, and one of them was sent to inform me to look out, or I would never reach Adelaide alive, but would be sent to feed the fishes instead, which I did not believe in. The voyage, however, was nearly at an end, and I kept my eyes open, thought much, but said nothing. At length we anchored off the semaphore, after a voyage of seventy-eight days, ill nearly all the time. Next morning I went on shore, having arranged with my wife that I would go up to Adelaide in search of a house and work. In closing the first part of my narrative, I feel constrained to record my sense of the providence of God that had preserved me amid so many vicissitudes and privations, and although it has been said it is good to bear the yoke in our youth, I cannot help thinking that had my earlier history been spent under the advantages of good education, I might have developed a much better character and nobler career. The young, especially, should learn to value the privileges and seize the opportunities for good, which in these days are so freely offered to them, but which were very sparingly bestowed in my time. I, however, do not repine, but refer the kind reader to the more hopeful passages and altogether brighter aspects which marked my later history and which will appear in the second and third parts of this autobiography. End of part one, section two.